When I was a child growing up in Pakistan, where my parents served as missionaries, I became infected by a tapeworm on two different occasions. They tell me that tapeworms can grow to be 30 feet long inside a person's intestines. The cure for a tapeworm is fairly simple but crude. I will spare your sensibilities by summarizing the cure. Essentially, the doctors start by starving you first to weaken the tapeworm. Then they give you this horrible-tasting liquid to drink. You must drink what seems like gallons of the stuff until you feel like you are going to violently erupt. Of course, in a manner of speaking, that is exactly what you do. Then you repeat this procedure multiple times until they can find no remnants of the tapeworm in your system. The medical personnel call this procedure purging. Some of you have had similar experiences of purging for other maladies. Zechariah 13 is all about spiritual purging for the nation of Israel. Purging is never pleasant, but it is necessary to heal a person physically. It is also necessary for spiritual healing. Purging for sin requires smiting the shepherd, Zechariah tells us. The first verse of Zechariah 13 acts like a hinge between the message of chapter 12 and the message of chapter 13. In Zechariah 12, we learned about the great mourning of the Israelites for their piercing of the Savior. They will one day understand what happened in the first century and realize that they crucified their Messiah. And when that happens, they will experience a wonderful national cleansing according to Zechariah chapter 13 and verse 1. In that day, a fountain will be opened for the house of David and for the inhabitants of Jerusalem for sin and for impurity. Zechariah 13.1 also introduces the cleansing of the land in the prophet's next message. Not only do the people need internal cleansing, but the land of Israel will need external cleansing as well. A great purge will take place in the country so that the nation can once again live as God intended them to live. There must be a purging for sin in Zechariah 13 verses 2 through 6. No one who has truly been forgiven and cleansed, like verse 1 tells us will happen for Israel, can function without the cleansing of their environment as well. Purging for sin is never just an internal matter. Real purging from sin affects our external lifestyles, or it isn't God's purging. If you can believe in Jesus Christ and still live like the world, then you better wonder about your internal cleansing. If you claim that your soul has been cleansed from sin, but your mouth spews filth, your soul is not clean. As James asks us all, 
If we bless God and curse men with our mouths, how can we claim cleansing? He says in James 3.11, Does a fountain send out from the same opening both fresh and bitter water? You see, when God purges, he purges the whole person. We may not see the ultimate completion of this cleansing process until we live in heaven, but we ought to see the process taking place in our lives if we are truly Christians. Theologians call it progressive sanctification. We are progressively being sanctified by the blood of Christ. William Cowper wrote those famous lines we used to sing frequently in church. There is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins, and sinners plunged beneath that flood lose all their guilty stains. And the last verse of Cowper's poem is important. Dear dying lamb, thy precious blood shall never lose its power till all the ransomed church of God be saved to sin no more. Till all the ransomed church of God be saved to sin no more. The blood of Christ will not lose its power until the church of Christ is saved to sin no more. The same is true for the nation of Israel. God says there is coming a day when they will repent of their sin, and the fountain of blood from Calvary's Lamb will cleanse them of sin's stain. Then God will also purge the land of evil and sin, so that the nation may live in the fullness of the fountain's purity. We call this period of time the Millennial Kingdom. It is the kingdom age that will come to this earth, and the prophet makes three points about that kingdom age. First, purging brings religious reformation in verse 2. It will come about in that day, declares the Lord of hosts, that I will cut off the names of the idols from the land, and they will no longer be remembered. And I will also remove the prophets and the unclean spirit from the land. God will purge the land of idolatry and false prophets, so that the kingdom of Israel will be free from such evil influences. In other words, there will be a great religious reformation in Judaism which will sweep away the false faith which many have even today. God will cut off the names of the idols in that day. The idol's name implied a real personality, which, of course, was not true. It was sort of like the child who names a doll and so believes it is somehow real because it now has a name. Well, God will cut off even the names of the idols. Furthermore, God will erase even the memory of those idols. What a blessed promise! Israel will no longer even remember her sinful practices of the past. What a wonderful expression of God's grace, my friends. And we have the same hope today in Christ. 
Anyone who has ever struggled with a sinful past knows that our memories of sin are the most difficult things to erase. Long after the sin has been dealt with objectively, its power and influence are still felt in our memories. I am reminded of the great mental and emotional battles that St. Augustine confessed in his Confessions, that they were part of his struggle in the faith. He had lived a very immoral past before he became a Christian. He had fully enjoyed the sexual perversions which life afforded him in the very decadent Roman Empire in which he lived. He had two different mistresses during the two years in which he was engaged to another woman. And one of those mistresses bore him a son before he packed her off and sent them both back to North Africa. When Augustine became a Christian, he confessed that he struggled with the memories of his immoral days. And he had a particular problem with his dreams at night, because he found them full of lust and immorality. He longed for the day when even his memories would be swallowed up in the victory of eternity with Christ. My friends, God will erase even the memories of sin one day. He can help you gain victory over sin today, but one day he will erase the memories of sin by the fountain of his grace. That is the incredible truth from the Bible about God's amazing grace. So purging brings religious reformation and secondly, purging brings severe judgment, verse 3. And if anyone still prophesies, then his father and mother who gave birth to him will say to him, You shall not live, for you have spoken falsely in the name of the Lord. And his father and mother who gave birth to him will pierce him through when he prophesies. God will bring about such a revival in the land that the people will not tolerate false prophets anymore. Even a man's own parents will pierce him through or stab him because he dares to prophesy falsehood about God. The word translated pierce is the same Hebrew word that is used in Zechariah 12 verse 10 where the Messiah is pierced. Just as they killed Christ violently, so they will kill their own child who dares to prophesy against the Lord. That is how much the power of holiness will take over the world in the coming kingdom age. Sin will not be tolerated anymore in God's kingdom. Of course, God had commanded Israel to do this very thing in the law in Deuteronomy 13, 6 through 10, and chapter 18, verse 20. According to the law of Israel, the parents were to stone the person to death. God says that there is coming a day when righteousness will reign supreme in all the land of Israel. In the millennial kingdom, the righteous will hate evil like God hates evil. How does this speak to our attitudes of toleration today? 
I'm not suggesting that we should start stoning people or stabbing people with swords because of false prophecy. We are not Israel, and we do not live in the Millennial Kingdom. However, it reminds me of my father's admonition to me at my ordination many years ago. He is now in heaven, but his words still haunt me today. He said in the presence of the congregation, Son, I would sooner hear that you have died a horrible death than hear that you have renounced your faith in Jesus Christ. Dad cared more about my spiritual holiness than he did about my physical life. The same should be true for all of us. Our spiritual lives, our eternal values, should drive us more than our physical comforts or material success. Finally, purging brings personal shame in verses 4 through 6. Also, Zechariah says, it will come about in that day that the prophets will each be ashamed of his vision when he prophesies, and they will not put on a hairy robe in order to deceive. But he will say, I am not a prophet, I am a tiller of the ground, for a man sold me as a slave in my youth. And one will say to him, What are these wounds between your arms? Then he will say, Those with which I was wounded in the house of my friends. And just think, even the former false prophets will be so ashamed of their past profession that they will hide the truth. Prophets had become a career that many chose to con people out of their money in Israel. These false prophets will no longer wear the hairy robes which were worn by many prophets since the days of Elijah, because they will be ashamed that they were ever once false prophets. These false prophets will renounce their former profession and tell people that they are only farmers as they return to agricultural careers. They will leave the prophetic life behind them in shame. Verse 6 has been variously interpreted. It reads, And one will say to him, What are these wounds between your arms? Then he will say, Those with which I was wounded in the house of my friends. There are many who have argued that this is a reference to Messiah himself, whom they pierced. They wounded. In other words, this is another messianic prophecy about Christ being wounded between the arms in the house of his friends. However, the context would favor viewing this as a reference to the wounds given to a false prophet. The prophets of Baal, for example, would cut themselves with swords and lances until the blood gushed out of them. 1 Kings 18.28 These are the wounds that the false prophets would inflict on themselves in the pursuit of religious fulfillment. They would cut and mutilate themselves in their attempts to curry favor with God, with their God, their idol. 
The word translated friends would be better translated as lovers, for it is commonly used in the Old Testament to refer to idolatrous worship. In other words, in the coming kingdom, former false prophets who have been saved by the grace of God through faith in Jesus Christ will be ashamed of the scars which are visible on their bodies, reminding them and others of their former lives, of their devotion to the idols. On a side note, I believe that the Israelites who enter the Millennial Kingdom at the return of Christ will do so in their normal physical bodies instead of resurrected and glorified bodies. But that topic is for another time, my friends. In the land of Pakistan where I grew up, the Muslims practiced a religious rite where they would use sharp razors and knives on the ends of chains to inflict deep gashes on their chests and backs until they collapsed in a pool of blood. Why? Why did they do all that? because they thought that somehow they were winning points with God by mutilating themselves. How many people today inflict pain on themselves because they think that they will win points with God through their sacrifices? There is a great religious zeal, which is not according to knowledge, the Bible tells us. This zeal willingly seeks God by means of self-mutilation and sacrifice. I find this passage a wonderful expression of God's grace. There will be some false prophets who will repent and mourn their sin in that day. There will be some false prophets who experience the cleansing of Christ's blood, but who will carry on their bodies the marks of their sin throughout the kingdom age. My friends, you cannot do anything to curry God's favor. All of your self-sacrifice will not earn you God's salvation. Instead, there will be many who will hear from God on that day, many who sacrificed, hurt themselves, did all sorts of things that they thought would get them into heaven. Many will hear from God on that day, depart from me, I never knew you. But, but, and here's the big but, here's the key, when you respond to his wondrous grace, no matter what you have done in the past, then all your wounds are swallowed up by his wounds for you. His grace purges your sin. What you do for him does not matter for salvation. Salvation is all about what he has done for you. That is why we must continue with this great prophecy in Zechariah and realize that purging for sin requires smiting the shepherd. We've looked at the first half of that assertion, so now let's look at the second half in verses 7 through 9. It is the smiting of the shepherd. Awake, O sword, against my shepherd, and against the man my associate, declares the Lord of hosts. 
These verses are a beautiful poem that flashes back to explain how the nation of Israel will arrive at the point of the total cleansing described in the first six verses. If it wasn't for the piercing or the smiting of the shepherd, Israel would never enjoy the blessings of the kingdom. The death of Jesus Christ on the cross is the basis for the salvation of Israel just as it is the basis for our salvation. The coming millennial kingdom is founded on the cross of Christ. And verse 7 tells us that the shepherd will come to a horrible end. Strike the shepherd, strike the shepherd, that the sheep may be scattered, Zechariah writes. The verb translated strike means to experience a violent death. The good shepherd will die a violent death for his sheep. God identifies this person as my shepherd and my associate. These are terms that indicate a very close relationship with the Lord Almighty. Literally, the shepherd here is one who lives side by side with God. In other words, he is God's equal, an associate in the Godhead. This person is none other than Jesus Christ, the Messiah, God's only son who dies that humans might live. The verse implies that God is the one who wields the sword against his own shepherd. Back in Zechariah 12, verse 10, it was the people of Israel who pierced their shepherd. But now we find out it is God himself who kills the shepherd. God the Father smites God the Son with a violent death at the hands of created man so that we might have eternal life. Here is a great picture of the atoning work of Jesus Christ for our sins. We have every reason to believe that Jesus meditated much on this passage as he approached his death. Jesus quotes the passage as he walks to the Garden of Gethsemane and predicts that his disciples will fall away from him when he is crucified in Matthew 26.31. Jesus told his disciples on his way to the Mount of Olives after they left the upper room, you will all fall away, you will all fall away because of me this night, this very night, for it is written, I will strike down the shepherd, and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. Jesus also talked about the good shepherd who will lay down his life for his sheep in John 10. And I wonder if Jesus thought of this passage in Zechariah 13 as he spoke those words. There are two results of the smiting of the shepherd in Zechariah 13. The first result is that smiting brings scattering. Strike the shepherd that the sheep may be scattered, and I will turn my hand against the little ones. It will come about in all the land, declares the Lord, that two parts in it will be cut off and perish, but the third will be left in it. Jesus applies this passage to the scattering of the apostles 
following his death. However, it more broadly applies to the scattering of the nation of Israel in the aftermath of the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD. Most of the prophecy must refer to more than the scattering of the disciples for a few days after the crucifixion. We can see elements of the fulfillment in the diaspora, the scattering of Israel across the nations of this world after 70 AD. The nation of Israel has undergone the most intense purges and persecutions of any nation on the face of the earth. There were terrible Jewish purges during the Middle Ages, so much so that some historians estimate that there were only about a million Jews left in the entire world by the early 1800s. Adolf Hitler, of course, we know, exterminated six million Jews during World War II. Yet despite all these purges, Israel still exists today. There will yet be one great purge during the time that the prophets called Jacob's trouble, and we often refer to as the Great Tribulation. During that time, which the book of Revelation talks about at length there, will be horrible purges of the entire world. Only a remnant of Israel will survive the genocide at that time. All of this scattering is the terrible result of the rejection and killing of Messiah in the first century A.D. It is the scattering of the sheep that Zechariah talks about in this passage. But the scattering of the sheep has a greater purpose in God's plan because of the second result. And the second result is that smiting brings refining in verse 9. And I will bring the third part through the fire, refine them as silver is refined, and test them as gold is tested. They will call on my name, and I will answer them. I will say, they are my people, and they will say, the Lord is my God. A remnant of Israel will survive. They will be refined, they will be tested, but they will survive. They will be found like pure gold when they come through God's refining fire. These people of Israel who mourn their Savior and are cleansed of all their sins will become a tried and true faithful remnant of Jesus Christ. They will be God's people and Christ will be their God. The hope of the Jew is bound up in the return of Christ and is based on the death of Christ. The ancient process of refining gold in those days involved a clay vessel containing lead, salt, and zinc, along with the gold ore. The vessel was tightly sealed and then placed in a very hot kiln for five days. The dross would adhere to the sides of the clay vessel, but the gold would be liquefied in the center. The remarkable truth from this ancient prophecy is that God will preserve a remnant from the nation of Israel 
through the fiery trials of all these years. And that remnant will emerge as pure gold in the end. And God says, they are my people. And they will say, the Lord is my God. Frederick the Great, who was king of Prussia in the 1700s, had become a skeptic through the influence of the atheist Voltaire. He once asked his chaplain to prove the truth of the Bible to him. Frederick said, If your Bible is really true, it ought to be capable of a very brief proof. So often when I've asked for proof of the inspiration of the Bible, I have been given some enormous volume that I have neither the time nor the disposition to read. If your Bible is really from God, you should be able to demonstrate the fact simply. Give me the proof of the inspiration of the Bible in a word. Well, the chaplain replied, Your Majesty, it is possible for me to answer your, your request quite literally. I can give you the proof you asked for in a single word. Frederick was amazed and, and asked, What is this magic word which carries such weight of proof? And the chaplain answered, Israel, your majesty, Israel. You see, my friends, the simple existence of the nation of Israel, after all these attempts to exterminate them, is proof that God keeps his word and that his word is true. A remnant will remain. The refining fire of God's wrath will purify them for the day when they will enjoy the blessings of the kingdom his grace has planned for them. The nation of Israel needed to learn the lesson that purging for sin requires smiting the shepherd. The wounded sinners of Israel will never enjoy the blessings of the kingdom until they learn that their Messiah was wounded for their wounds. All the religious devotion of Israel cannot save them. They must turn to the scarred Savior to take away their sins. And then they will know the cleansing flow found in the fountain of Messiah's blood. You might be listening and thinking, what does this have to do with me today in the 21st century? I will tell you. The principle is still the same for you, Jew or Gentile. Apart from the shed blood of Jesus Christ, you cannot have eternal life. Our purging from sin requires the smiting of the shepherd. He, Jesus, was wounded for our wounds. He died our death. When Jesus stood among his disciples in the upper room, he turned to doubting Thomas, and he invited Thomas to touch the scars in his hands and side. The scars tell the story of his wounds suffered for us. Thomas believed because of the scars. 
His scars in death pay for our scars of sin. He heals our scars by his scars. We all carry scars. We are wounded people. The scars of surgery long ago remind us that the scalpel led to healing. But there are other scars too. Emotional and spiritual scars lie buried from public view, but remind us of the searing pain we experienced in the past. Dark days of deep pain give those scars the power to dominate our memories. Some scars remind us of the sinful choices we have made that have hurt ourselves and have hurt those we love. We feel the sting of sin and shame. Christ's scars remind us that the scalpel cuts as the scalpel heals. He was scarred for our scars. His pain is our gain. And one day, one day, he will erase even the memory of our scars. Our scars will remember no more because his scars remain for eternity. His scars remind us of his love and his grace that sent him to the cross to buy us back from our sin and shame. My friends, run to the cross and find release from your pain today.